This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Now we're getting really close to the end. (laughs) But it ain't over yet. (laughs) Even though I confess I'm always saying the same thing over and over. Uh, I'd like to say... um, all, all of the teachers I've ever practiced with seem to each have their unique thing that they say over and over. And one of them, um, one of my Tibetan teachers said the same thing, um, recently, uh, I'm always saying the same thing, but, um, but, uh, some things are, um, that are important should be said over and over. So. They take a long time to kind of seep in. It helps me to, uh, when I, often I'm giving a Dharma talk to myself. I'm reminding myself again and again. And, uh, Keizan Zenji, I, I think his, he has a particular style where he's kind of saying the same thing over and over, even though he has all these different stories to channel what he's saying through. And uh, I really appreciate what he says over and over. <clears throat> as I as I previously mentioned, uh, in our Soto Zen tradition, maybe the two central writings, the texts that that uh, express the wind of our house are Dogen Zenji's Shobogenzo, the treasury of the true Dharma eye, which is quite long, um, but amazing. And he says some different things because it's long enough to do so. And then this case on Zenji's Denko Roku, the record of transmitting the light. So, um, so they're not always so easy to understand, but, um, they're worth reading again and again if you can't think of what to study, um, and there's commentaries on them, <clears throat> and there's multiple translations. So uh, this Denko Roku, <clears throat> I think there was an early translation by um, Nishiyama Roshi that's still kicking around the internet, which may be a little clunky, <coughs> and then... Um, People didn't study so much. I didn't know about it early on, but I remember when um, the first uh, kind of popular translations came out in the in the 90s. Um, Thomas Cleary translation and this one by Francis Cook. It came out like the same year, coincidentally. So it was like a big birthday celebration of uh, having access to this text with great translations and great introductions. And then uh, Shasta Abbey did a translation too. And um, and then just in the last year or two, uh, a new translation came out that I think is maybe the like kind of definitive scholarly translation by Griffith Falk, uh, William Botiford and others uh, sponsored by the Soto School in Japan. So uh, it's maybe a nice one to have in, in a Zen Center library. It's a little expensive, two big volumes. Um, I still like the Francis Cook one because it flows. I like his his translation style. The new one is very like literal. It's right, the kind of scholarly standard but sometimes when it's literal it's a little clunky but it's bilingual it has um it has the japanese uh, like a paragraph of japanese and then in english and then another paragraph in japanese and english and has um extensive footnotes all throughout and it has a second volume of several hundred pages 
that's just a glossary. Mm-hmm. So, which is all these strange Zen terms and, you know, amazing to me how these people put together even this glossary researched all the references for these, some of the terms and stories and ancestors that Kazan refers to. And, <clears throat> and then the, the Soto School is also, this year is just, just came out with their kind of definitive kind of scholarly translation of Dogen Shobogenzo in uh, like seven volumes. So, in bilingual and heavily annotated with the whole volume of glossary also. So this is, um, this is how the world goes, you know, slowly. It's devotion to the, to the ancestors, we could say that, you know, there's already translations around, but let's do an even more thorough one. Um, we can use them all together. I've been looking at them all this week. And, uh, I just happened to bring this with me and I thought, um, this is not Kazan, but, um, just these kinds of teachings that we're hearing, we might think, this is, um, this, this is a weird new Zen thing and it's maybe not really Buddha Dharma in the classical sense. It's some newfangled Zen invention of Kazan and Kokyo or something like that. So because of that, um, I just wanted to read you this, this, um, short uh, description of the meditation uh, from the Yogacara tradition, the the, the Indian tradition from the uh, the 4th century founded by the brothers Asanga and Vasubandhu. (coughs) Many amazing and challenging texts. And... um, in in one of uh, the texts by um, like Asanga, kind of channeling Maitreya Buddha, uh, important um, treatise called the um, the uh, adornment of Mahayana sutras, or the ornament for the great vehicle scriptures, the Mahayana Sutra Alamkara. Uh, verses, um, chapter 7, verses 7 to 8, put it like this. Understanding that reference, reference, with a T-S, reference um, is um, those things that we refer to in the objective world. So, um, maybe we could say objects are like reference for the mind. Maybe easier to translate it as objects in this case. Understanding that these objects of experience are mere mental chatter. Objects of experience are mere mental chatter. Bodhisattvas dwell in mere mind appearing as these. Sound familiar? Understanding that these objects that we're experiencing are actually just mental chatter, bodhisattvas dwell in mere mind or mind only appearing as these objects. Then they directly perceive the realm of reality, the Dharma Datu. <coughs> Thus being free from the characteristic of duality. And I think it's referring to the duality of mind and object. The mind is aware that nothing other than mind exists. Then it is realized 
then mind does not exist either. This is one of those tricky moves of the Yogacara tradition. The mind is aware that nothing other than mind exists. Then it's realized that the mind does not exist either. The intelligent ones are aware that both the mind and the objects do not exist and that they abide in the realm of reality in which these two are absent. And, uh, so that's, that's the old way of saying it in the fourth century Indian tradition. And then this text says, this is this, this kind of med, it's a long text that has lots of other bodhisattva practices about six paramitas and things like this. Other things that are in the Mahayana sutras. But it's saying this understanding is the, is the pivotal, uh, moment for bodhisattvas called the path of seeing, the uh, insight into the nature of reality when they actually um, embark on these stages of the bodhisattva leading to Buddhahood. They, um, they're irreversibly um, changed and um, progress on their path based on this understanding. I'll just read it again. Understanding that objects are just mental chatter, bodhisattvas dwell in mere mind appearing as these objects. Then they directly perceive the realm of reality, thus being free from the characteristic of duality. The mind is aware that nothing other than mind exists. Then it's realized that mind does not exist either. The intelligent ones are aware that both mind and the world of objects do not exist in some substantial way, in any graspable way, and they abide in the realm of reality in which these Mind and objects are absent. <coughs> There's many ways of saying it. That's one of them. Yes. Does the mind realize that it doesn't exist? Uh, yeah, it's a good it's question, right? For, this one says, the mind is aware that nothing other than mind exists then it is realized <laughs> that mind does not exist either. So, it's a good question. Um, I think we could say that, that, that mind, because mind is what's aware that nothing other than mind exists. <laughs> so, then it's, then the mind realizes that it does not exist either. Yeah, strange. Um, I mean, we could put it that way, or, or another way would be like, that the realization that the mind doesn't exist is a realization that is not mind in, in the way that we usually think of mind. It's a, it's a, um, like a wisdom. It's a non-dual knowing. So if we think of mind as, um, as the subjective side of things, uh, then we could say, outside of that mind, there's a a realization that we can't say what it is. But we might be able to say that it's it's mind too. <clears throat> Reality verifying itself. Partly the, the way that they do this is this thing. The objects 
um, are dependent on mind, so they're 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 not something other than mind. So there aren't any objects because they just depend on mind. But then the mind depends on the object, so there's no objects left for the mind to depend on. So then the mind can't stand up either. Yes, this is the kind of kind of meditation that um, can be done by sentient beings. And when they meditate thus um, thoroughly, it may be that they're no longer sentient beings. In this story, today's story, about the 11th ancestor, Punya Yashas, was originally a wise person. For that reason, he said, my mind does not go anywhere, my mind does not abide anywhere, and all the Buddhas are also thus. We heard this morning. And then Kazan says, however, this is a dualistic view. And the reason is that he understood my mind is thus and all Buddhas are thus. <clears throat> so uh, we could maybe understand Kazan is saying that we're making a distinction between my mind is thus and all Buddhas are thus. And that's the dualistic view. That there are no Buddhas other than mind being thus. I think that's what Kazan's trying to get at. <clears throat> and that's kind of was the gist of the story. Because uh, when, when uh, Punyasha said, um, all Buddhas are thus, uh, Parshva said, you are not all Buddhas, and the Buddhas, moreover, are not you. You shouldn't make a distinction between, uh, the, between you and Buddhas. <coughs> and uh, Kazan says, therefore, in that way, P- Venerable Parshva drove off the plowman's ox, and snatched away the hungry man's food, which is a uh, one of these Zen phrases that's an interesting one that you see crop up here and there as a, a skillful te- teacher kind of pulling out the rug. And uh, but it, it's a I think a wonderful way to say it. Drove off the plowman's ox. So Punyasha's, you know plowing along with his life, right, doing his thing. Okay, I got my ox, like, doing this work here. And then the teacher comes along and, like, takes away the ox that's, that's doing the work. Or snatching away the hungry man's food. Yes, I got this dharma here. I got, I got, I got it. It's taste. Oh, where'd it go? <laughs> Yeah, interesting uh, Zen phrase. Dro- the teacher drives off the plowman's ox and snatches away the hungry person's food. <clears throat> Even those who try to attain the way are unable to help themselves. So how much less can one depend on, in parentheses from the translator, some external reality, end of parentheses, called all Buddhas. Therefore, Parshva said, you are not, you yourself are not all Buddhas. There's no external reality to you called all Buddhas. Kazan says, this cannot be understood through reason, nor can it be discerned through such concepts as the signless. It cannot be understood through the wisdom of all Buddhas, 
nor can it be figured out through your own intelligence. After hearing these words uttered by Parshva, Punyayasas practiced for 21 days without let-up. Finally, one day, he was awakened and forgot, quote, my mind. Remember, my mind is thus. But he forgot my mind, just like um, uh, Maitreya and Asanga said, Bodhisattvas then uh, realized that mind does not exist either. And he was liberated from all Buddhas as anything external. This is called being awakened to patience with regard to the non-arising of all things. What he realized. In the end, he grasped this principle and experienced boundlessness and the absence of subject and object. Because uh, within boundlessness, uh, where there's no edges or locations at all, you can't have separate subjects and objects. He expressed what he had experienced with the words all Buddhas are not you. Yeah, and that's interesting because um, I don't know if you remember this sort of complicated thing I mentioned this morning about how the original Chinese one has... Um, Parshva says, you are not all Buddhas, and then Punyayasha said, the Buddhas are not you. But Kazan puts it all together as Parshva says, you're not all Buddhas, and all Buddhas are not you. But here it looks like Kazan's um, uh, saying that Punyayasha said, to express his new understanding, said, all Buddhas are not you. Oh, uh, yeah. Francis Cook has a footnote there where he says, the text is amended in accordance with readings in other versions. And he says, gives these two readings in Japanese and says, the second one seems clearer in context, hence my choice. So this is the kind of thing that translators have to do. <clears throat> the ancestral way cannot be grasped by means of reason, nor can it be discerned with the mind. Therefore, you cannot consider dharmakaya, the reality body, dharma nature, dharmata, or the reality of things, or myriad things are one mind. All these these phrases, you cannot uh, consider them to be the ultimate. Why? Because they're just phrases. But they're good ones. There are fingers pointing at the moon, but we need like fingers pointing accurately at the moon before we let go of the finger. Uh, you cannot speak of it as unchanging, sorry, or as purity. How much less can you understand it as empty cessation or supreme principle when the wise ones of all traditions arrived fully at this place they returned to beginner's mind. Shoshin. <coughs> that, the phrase that Suzuki Roshi popularized. Because in the beginner's mind, there's many possibilities, but in the expert's mind, there's few. So, uh, so Kazan says, when the wise ones of all traditions 
arrived fully at this place of understanding, they returned to beginner's mind and they opened and clarified the realm of mind. They directly passed on to the entry road and they promptly broke through their own views, their own fixed views. With beginner's mind, that's open, curious, and ready to hear uh, a new understanding. I really appreciate the fact that um, um, His Holiness the Dalai Lama really likes to converse with the scientists, both the uh, physicists and the and the cognitive scientists, and. Um, he really respects modern Western science and wants to learn anything he can, <coughs> even in his old age. Did he just have his, was it 90th birthday or 80th? 88th, 88th birthday. Still teaching and so on. And um, having these conferences with scientists and he's really steeped in the Indian Mahayana, um, Indo-Tibetan Mahayana Buddhist tradition. He got a lot of training in that. And uh, his commentaries are really great and clear. And um, they use a lot of logic to kind of prove how things are. So he's very used to that kind of debate and getting to the bottom of things conceptually. But then... Um, What's wonderful is he says, um, uh, if science can prove some of the, some of these ancient Buddhist ideas are not true, um, in a, in a way that really shows evidence, I'll go with the science. This is inspiring, I think, for a religious leader. And I think in some of his conversations with the scientists, his view maybe did change some, and sometimes, Scientists' views maybe changed some, or they couldn't get to the couldn't get to the bottom of things. I think when they get into the areas of like rebirth, for example, it's like, well, if the scientists can prove that it's not the case, okay, but it's going to be hard to do that. Uh, so I mention this because I think that's the the eighty-eight-year-old uh, Dalai Lama's beginner's mind. It's very like, um, there's many possibilities. He's open to hearing a new understanding. He has very good, clear understanding, and if nothing refutes it, he can keep it, but he's, he's open to hearing a, a new way, outside his own tradition even. Yes? Yeah, no, like, why, why is it that there's no, like, material reality outside of mind that things appear to sort of follow? Why is, why do you kind of have, like, consensus reality that appears to follow physics. Well, people agree on the uh, on physics. So yeah, so I think so. These um, one of the hardest parts of of this mind only view is both um, consensus reality that um, where where different people can describe the same kind of thing in very similar ways and come to the same conclusions. We can all um, we can all look at this thing and agree that there's something like a book. We're all seeing something slightly different from our different angles and we have slightly different understanding of what this book is, but um, but still there's a lot of consensus which makes it hard to open to the possibility that there's not some objective actual book, external book to all of us that we're looking at. And the other Part is the regularity. Consensus is like different, different beings um, <clears throat> agreeing on on one thing, and then regularity is that like we can put the put the book on a shelf over there, and then come back the next day and it's still there. <laughs> Did our mind leave it there? Uh, and you can even like you know bury a treasure on a distant mountaintop. <clears throat> And, um, and then leave a map and somebody can find it in like thousands of years and go and still find that treasure there. 
that's we call, call it like regularity. So I think these two points are the ones that make it hardest to open to this um, kind of mind only view. But uh, <coughs> um, the tradition, like the Yogacara tradition, tries to address these these things, um, and it maybe needs to keep looking at these things. We need to look at both sides. But um, one way it addresses it is that um, the consensus part is that uh, is that we um, we humans are a species of minds that have very similar karmic tendencies. We've evolved very similarly over a long, long time, so that we perceive things very similarly, although not exactly the same. If we tried to say exactly the same, we would have a hard time. And that's one of the clues that kind of opens us to the mind only. There's, that there's not exactly some external reality. It's precisely what everyone agrees is. Um, but it's very similar because we have very similar karmic tendencies. Our storehouse consciousnesses are very similar in certain ways. And of course, they're different in other ways, like the memory banks contain different information but the you could say the I don't know the the uh the software programs are very similar but the um but the documents contained in the software are very different something like that and then and then different species of course see things very differently so that really helps to understand and that's often what the yogacara people will say well you know if you drop this book in the pond a fish is not going to see it like kazan's record right? like oh that's one of those zen teachings of kazan's getting soggy down here they're just <laughs> not going to see it that way but do they still see some object Probably they still see some like object object thing, because that's the that's the karmic um, tendency that they do share with us. All sentient beings have this have a have consciousness and uh, divided in divided into a parent subject and object, so a dualistic consciousness, so that they do see some object, but it's quite different object, and uh, so that's. Kind of getting at the um, consensus part and the regularity part, <coughs> also very difficult. I spent a long time trying to think about these because they they really pull me back into the, a materialistic view. Um, so, um, but they're not they're not um, cause for alarm. <laughs> they're, they're not necessarily proof that. Um, that everything is fixed and dualistic and separate and material and solid and chunky. They're, they're uh, not definitive proof, but they make it. They're the hardest barriers, I think. The regularity part is um, like a like a common example that shows us how um, how we all know that um, there can be a mind-made world, including subject and object duality. Um, that appears that way, but is really not in our dreams. So it's a common example in the Yogacara tradition to help convince us. When we're dreaming, there seems to be a subject that's relating to an objective world that's three-dimensional. There's the, there's the regular forces of gravity in most dreams. It's a little less regular because you might be able to fly in a dream, but mostly in the dreams, we walk around on an earth, so there's, it's called dream gravity. And most dreams have this regularity of dream gravity. And if you dream of your house, it might be somewhat, some regularity. It might be a little bit different than your usual house, because dreams are a little more flexible than waking life. But the principles of regularity and consensus operating in dreams, the consensus would be like, you talk to the your dream your dream friend in the dream, usually there's other people we're relating to. If you were to ask them, Do you see that book on the table? The dream person probably would say, Um, yeah, I see it too. We both see it. 
And then you wake up and you realize the whole thing, the whole consensus, reality, and regularity were all concocted by the mind without any material world needed. So these are, they can help us open to the possibility. But it's hard. It's such a different view. But even a, even a, um, mind matter duality and so on is also creates, has a lot of problems. That one creates other problems that I would say are just as difficult. How can, how can, um, mind know matter or how could matter create mind? Science is not, is not, um, answering these questions either. So hearing these types of things over and over, I, I, I confess I'm not completely convinced one way or the other. I'm somewhere in the middle. So I'm open to the scientists and I'm open to the yoga charans and I'm open to Kazan Zenji. And, uh, I feel like I haven't landed definitively, but I, but I like the challenge of, of the, uh, particularly this Yogacara tradition and Madhyamaka tradition is, some might say, more radical. Really, that there, that there isn't anything at all. Yes. Uh, yeah, I appreciate Paul's question. Uh, I, that's a funny question I've thought about a lot. And one thing that I have come to the conclusion is observing how much information we have to ignore to conclude that things are regular. <laughs> like right now, like looking at you, like every time you shake your head, like your face changes colors. Like mm-hmm. the it it's actually like a different appearance mm-hmm. every second. Yeah. And that's something that it's very easy to slip into ignoring. Mm-hmm. And I find that yeah, I kind of noticing that like every time I move my hand like it looks pink and now it's kind of yellowish. There's like parts that are like red and white and like every time, just based on temperature, like the and uh, the lighting situation, like every second it changes. Yeah. But and that's something that I ignore ninety nine point nine 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 percent of the time. Thank you. That's a great example. Yes. Yeah. That and and I think and the and the um, cognitive scientists and biologists also agree that our minds are like. Ex- uh, make an extremely filtered down version of things in order to just deal with life. <laughs> it's very, it's a very limited, almost generic versions of things. Like, yeah, it's just a hand rather than, actually, I don't know what it is. I've never seen it quite like this. It would just be, it would take too long to get through the day. So, <laughs> yes. Um, thinking about the, this as well, I find it interesting that when, as soon as we talk about consensus and regularity, we're talking about an indi- like comparing interpretations by two individual minds. Like we're now we're back to individual mind. That like it feels like we slip back into small mind. Whereas when I understand this mind only, it's more big mind. It's not. It's not <coughs> that everything is a delusion if my small mind. It's if this big mind includes everything. And so then I guess then my question is like. Then isn't the, the, the this awareness that we're talking about big mind? Isn't it? We all have the same awareness. Yes. Yeah, so, so the Yogacara tradition is is um, proposing, as I understand it, that um, <clears throat> it's kind of a, a, a mix. And mostly, what it's talking about is it's saying that there are individual minds, um, dualistic consciousnesses, or particularly storehouse consciousnesses. That's that's quite clear in the tradition. It's not like it's one big storehouse consciousness, because that's the individual storehouse consciousness is what enables the rebirth of a particular karmic stream. A karma doesn't get all mixed together. So um, each each person, what we call person, is an individual dualistic consciousness, storehouse consciousness with eight consciousnesses and individual sense organs. But it's all mind. There's no matter in this, in this model. And so these mind, and these minds, because they're not, they have no location, they're very permeable. And so, and we know that, look, we're having a conversation right now. Our minds are interdependent. 
And when we're relating to anybody, we're completely interdependent and yet individual. And then we, that's mostly the, the Yogacara story. And then, and then the Buddha nature teachings come in and start implying that that's all still true. But then this, uh, big mind or Buddha nature or Dharmakaya is not divided. So, um, so I would understand it like, uh, like there's only one, it's really beyond the idea of one and many. I think e- even teachers, when I ask them about this, is there one? They, they are hesitant to say that. They don't want a, an idea of like one God or something. So it's, it often maybe would say like, oh, it doesn't fit into our categories of one or many. But I think conceptually it's, it, it's, it's interesting to approach it as one indivisible boundless, ungraspable reality and um, that then appears as as billions of storehouse consciousnesses, other species too are all they're all interdependent. So one one image of it is like like a like a river or an ocean um, of this one uh, reality and then there's these like kind of whirlpools of energy that are like each individual storehouse consciousness. So the nature is the same water for all of them. And the water of this whirlpool is overlapping with this one, interdependent. There's no, there's no sharp boundaries. But yet this pattern of water has its unique pattern. And this pattern of water has a unique pattern. And then when the, um, you could say the, the death of the person is like this whirlpool of energy kind of stops and that whirlpool is gone but then the the water that makes up that whirlpool that's part of the same water has some momentum from the previous whirlpool so it starts swirling in a new way and that's like a new life so this the, the nature of each life is the same ocean but the um but the individual patterns of whirlpools can be reborn um in a kind of causal series of body and mind experiences. So, so yes, you could say uh, <coughs> the consensus reality part involves different minds and this, which are valid in this Yogacara system. And the regularity part doesn't necessarily require different minds, but it requires like time, regularity over time. So, yeah. Yes. Uh, this is a bit different question, but by embracing the beginner's mind, how much, I guess, time should you spend, let's say, studying the sutras and going into different paths of knowledge, and how much of your time should you spend sitting and meditating and just kind of simplifying things? Yeah, and yeah. Learning it's a good path. question. Mm-hmm. So, um, it's no set. Um, number of hours, right? No set ratio even. Each person has their own inclinations, um, maybe beyond their own choice even. And as a, some previous chapter, it was Parsha's chapter, right? Where, where the friends, the, the other monks around him teased him because <coughs> he was so old and said, um, there's only two kind of monks. There's the ones who meditate and the ones who recite the sutras. And you're too old to do either. <laughs> And I thought, um, yeah, that's interesting that that was this idea that there's these two kinds of practitioners, but uh, we should be both kinds. And uh, and the the Buddha said this too. There's an early sutta where the there were even in the Buddha's time there were those who were like studying the Buddha's words a lot and those who were meditating a lot, and they were kind of arguing which one was better. And the Buddha said, um, "Don't say one's better than the other. They're both good." And I think he might have said something like, um, like, uh, if you just study the teachings and don't meditate, you're, um, like, uh, um, a clear, a person with clear vision, but that has no legs. Uh, you really see how it is, but you can't go anywhere. You're not, you're not doing it. And then the meditator who doesn't study has good, strong legs. They can go somewhere, but they're blind. They don't actually know where to go. <laughs> 
So uh, that's a nice image, right? We want to have good eyes and good legs and um, understand and practice and have them go together. Ideally, there's a lot of dharma knowledge that's maybe not that helpful for actual practice and uh, <coughs> and and some that really like shifts the way we meditate. So I think a mix is good. Spend time doing both. Especially the study that informs how we meditate. In Zen, there's a little more more emphasis maybe on the meditation and not so much on the study because it's a separate transmission outside the scriptures. But then people might just, well, I'll just sit here and see what happens for 50 years or something. And, uh, yeah, it's relaxing, but like, you know, I didn't really get to the bottom of, of some of the things these teachings are saying. And so both, both are good. Or like Dogen says in the Gakudo Yojinshu, he says something like, um, practice is two things. It's, um, Shikantaza, just wholeheartedly sitting, and Sanchi Mompo, um, visiting teachers to inquire about the Dharma. And teachers could include texts too. And he said, with, and with both of these, we can hit the mark, but if we're missing either one, uh, it's, it's gonna be hard. <clears throat> so, uh, <clears throat> the ancestral way, oh, let's see. <clears throat> this is all clear from the present story. Because Punya Yashas was already a wise person, the earth turned a golden color when he arrived. His virtue was like wind that has the power to create a stir among things. However, he still practiced for 21 days before he reached this place. He heard some teaching, but then he's like, I gotta take this into meditation now for 21 days. Good people, clarify and discern carefully and do not settle the essential point by using small virtues, small wisdom, your own views or old attitudes. Be extremely careful and you will reach it for the first time. Yes. Thank you, Kazan. This morning I gratefully use a few humble words to help you understand this matter, maybe. Would you like to hear them? Kazan says, My mind is not the Buddha's, nor... Are Buddhas you? My mind doesn't need any extra Buddhas, and neither do you. Coming and going, abide herein, in this space, as always. My mind is not the Buddhas. All Buddhas are not you and your mind. Herein, in this mind, um, coming and going, arise and cease, always. Like this, creating the unity of the two truths. A lot of words have been um, shared this week. A lot of silence has been shared. And uh, <clears throat> maybe more questions um, have arisen than answers. Uh, maybe we feel encouraged to study and practice meditation further. Maybe we just feel tired and ready to go home. Maybe some combination. Uh, yeah. But my wish is that uh, our gathering this week 
may have generated some um, merit, <coughs> the result of virtuous activity, because it looks to me like there's a lot of virtuous activity going on around here this week. making a diligent effort to sit still period after period, making a diligent effort to listen and contemplate the teachings and put them into practice and to um, prepare food and serve it to the assembly and uh, to eat it. So much virtuous activity. And here's the result. Uh, incalculable heap of merit and uh, inconceivable heap of merit. So even though we can't conceive of it, may we enjoy it and share the joy of this merit with all beings everywhere. May we take it out into our post-session life and share it just by being ourselves and... Um, and uh, being okay with our life because every thought is not abiding anywhere except in this big space which is already enjoying itself. Anything else to... Bring up before we close. Just to uh, thank you for coming back to offer your teaching. You're welcome. I don't know how long you've been visiting before I got here, certainly, but uh, many years many coming years into this. May it continue. Thank you for inviting me, and, oh, and thank you all for um, your support. I I learned a lot from Kazan this week. And you're my excuse to have done so. <laughs> Thank you very much. <clears throat> may the merit be dedicated so that all, all beings may be free and that, um, um, with this, this root of virtue we've collected and merit, um, may it, uh, inconceivably pervade the universe. May it, um, may it help us humans to, uh, be free in all kinds of ways to get over the um, totally deluded idea that we, we should create wars to uh, conquer each other and may we find ways to um, to address the, this catastrophe of climate change um, in whatever way we can and all kinds of other uh, human suffering uh, May, may our practice, um, create bits and pieces of conditions to help, um, heal all beings. <clears throat>